Listen, a couple of books that I'd want to encourage you to read as a church, if you've got questions about this topic. First of all, would be What's the Difference by John Piper. Manhood and Womanhood Defined According to the Bible. It's just a really helpful, simple book that explains the way biblical manhood and womanhood works, not only in marriage, but in, in all of life. And I think it's a really good starter for where we begin. Then secondarily, can Carrie Sandom, Different by Design, God's Blueprint for Men and Women. This is a book that the Titus 2 groups went through last year. I just think it's outstanding. I would encourage every man, woman, child, read it. It's, it's excellent. Now, she's English. She's a single, older English girl. And there are English-isms in it, which I found hilarious, but you might not quite in the same way. But nonetheless, the content of her material is just excellent and will really help you battle and understand what is it that the Bible's teaching when it comes to God's grand design. And then this one, God's good design, by, by our very own Sydney side of Claire Smith. Her husband's actually spoken in this church once, Rob Smith. What the Bible really says about men and women. She goes through all of the difficult and challenging biblical texts in the Bible and explains what they mean. And her background, background is the same as mine. She got saved into a Pentecostal church and then started to read and study the Bible in a different way and came to the place of realizing, this is different to what I've had. And so I had to bottom things out biblically. And so she went to the Bible and studied the Bible. She's a super smart lady. Once upon a time, I gave a message in this church six years ago um, on, on submission, actually. It was Ephesians 5 submission. I didn't know her then. But what I did see is she was sitting in the front row with her Greek Bible out. That makes a preacher slightly nervous. <laughs> and then I was speaking to her afterwards, inquiring who she was, got to know her, and then we bought her book. So this is an excellent book. <laughs> I'm not mentioned in it. I did check. But it, 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 it's a great book. I would encourage you to read it. And it will genuinely help you. So where you've got questions, I'm going to try and answer them over the next five weeks. But I'm not going to be able to answer every last one of them. So read. And if you've got ongoing questions, come and see it. Come and speak to me. It's okay. You have my email address. Just say, hey, how does this work? What, what about this? Because I want to help you. I want to listen to you. I'm your pastor. It is a joy to seek to teach you in the pulpit and hopefully outside of it as well. Amen? Listen, John Calvin once said, We owe to Scripture the same reverence that we owe to God. And that's why we have to sit under God's Word. And so I'd be grateful if you turn in your Bibles, please, to Ephesians chapter 5. This week we are looking at God's grand design for husbands. I said to a wife this morning, not my wife, a another wife, um, I said to her this morning, please be kind to your husband today because he is going to have a hard time in this week's message. At which point they said, oh, excellent. And then I said, and it will be your turn next week as we look at wives. To which they replied, I will be sick next week. And I said, no, you will be here next week. But this week we are looking at God's grand design for husbands and we are going to be giving careful attention to chapter 5 of the book of Ephesians from verse 22 through to 33. This is God's word, and this is what it says. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's pray. Well, Lord, as we gather around your word again today, Lord, we look to you for help. Lord, would you open our eyes, not to what we perceive, but to what is genuinely there. Lord, help us see your word for what it is. Lord, would we hear your voice speak loud and clearly to us, not through our cultural conditioning. Help us, Lord. Amen. Last week, as we looked into Genesis 1 and 2 together, I think we saw some pretty important, and I trust, incredible things. In Genesis chapter 1, we understand and learn that men and women are made equal in their value and worth and dignity before the Lord. Men and women made in God's image, made entirely in equal ability to reflect the glory of the Lord back to him. We read in Genesis 1, verse 26 and 27, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. The Trinity is talking to one another. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created So we see very early on in the Bible, God created man and woman equal in their value, in their worth, in their dignity, in their ability to reflect the glory of God back to him. Both made in equalness in God's likeness. But then in Genesis chapter 2, we see that nonetheless men and women are made distinct and different in their roles. And so right here with the very first male and female, with the very first married couple in the Bible, we see a distinction and difference in role, a complementarity. Two people that are made equal in value and worth and dignity, but different in role to complement one another. And I said that last week, but I didn't establish where exactly we get that from, so I wanted to do that this week. Because there are many things, there are five things in particular in Genesis 2 that show us and establish this principle of head and helper, of leader within the context of the very first married couple. That there's a difference and a distinction. Just in case you don't believe me, I'm going to show you where it is. Because there are many different ways in Genesis chapter 2 where we see that, that Adam's role is established as head and leader of his home. Number one, Adam was created first, and then Eve. There was an order to it. See, make no mistake, God could have created them simultaneously. 
could have just made them at exactly the same time. But he didn't. And this was by divine design, because he's making a statement here. If he had made them simultaneously, it would have been a clear statement of equality in all things, including role. But he doesn't. He makes them in a specific order, and he does that to reveal and prove that Adam is the head. Now, a number of you will be thinking in this moment, how do you know that? Well, because Paul picks the argument up in 1 Timothy 2 verse 13. He's talking why elders should be male. And in 1 Timothy 2 verse 13, he says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Paul actually picks up on the important argument from Genesis chapter 2 to prove and support headship in the way they were made in a divine order. And so if you struggle with that, your problem isn't with me, it's with the Apostle Paul. And if it's God-breathed, your problem's with God. Number two, Adam's headship and leadership role is established by his being given personal responsibility for the garden. Prior to Eve ever existing, Adam is given personal responsibility for the entirety of the garden. So we read in Genesis 2, verses 15 through 17, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. We see very early on then in Scripture, it was Adam, specifically Adam, that was given the responsibility of headship and accountability for the garden. And that just doesn't mean working the ground also includes overseeing the moral environment of the, of the garden. So he had been given clear instruction by the Lord, I want you to work the ground, I want you to eat of the fruit of it, but not that tree. He's given the headship and accountability for the entire garden, including the moral environment as well, and this was all given to him prior to Eve's creation. That was because he was the head. He was designed to be the head. And we know it because even after Eve was made, Genesis 3, the fall takes place. Who eats the forbidden fruit first? Well, Eve. Does sin come into the world through Eve? No. The book of Romans, Paul tells us, is through Adam. But she did it first. Not the point. He was the head of the home. And it's when he does it. So when God steps into the garden in Genesis 3, who's he looking for? Adam, where are you? I'm looking for you. Why? Because you are the head. You were given this responsibility, and you are the leader of your home. And so we see Adam's headship emphasized in the fact that he was given personal responsibility for the garden, and when it didn't work out, God comes back to speak to him. Number three, Eve was made for Adam and created from Adam. In Genesis 2, verse 18, we read, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now that is a staggering verse in the Bible because prior to that moment, everything the Lord has done, he said, it is good. But now as he looks on at Adam, he's like, there's something missing. Carrie Sundom in her book, Different by Design, picks it up this way. She says, Genesis 2 verse 18 is supposed to stand out and shock us. After all the times God has surveyed his work and declared it to be good, 
Here is a situation that is not good. It is not good for the man to be alone. He cannot adequately reflect God's image on his own, nor fulfill the creation mandate to fill the earth and subdue it on his own. He needs a helper. And so he does. So God makes for him Eve. And Paul draws attention to this created reality that Eve was made for Adam and created from Adam. He, he draws attention to this leading to his headship and pointing to his headship in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, as many of you may or may not know, the whole issue is to do with head covering. In this tradition at this time, women would wear head covering and they did that as a sign that their husband was the head of the home. But they were slightly rebellious, so they started to take it off. And they were like, I ain't the head of my home, I ain't doing this. And so Paul addresses that church and says, you know what, this isn't right. You are dishonoring the heads of your home. And to help them see that argument, in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 8 through 9, he explains where this headship has come from. He says, For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. You know, if a politician said that today, I wonder if they would keep their job. And yet this is the Apostle Paul that said to live is Christ and to die is gain. And he's helping them see, guys, this isn't right. There's, there's a difference. Yes, equal in value and worth and dignity and ability, but difference in role. And so for you not to wear a head covering in this specific context, it is against created order. It's got nothing to do with culture. It's got to do with Genesis 2. And the fact that your husband is the head of your home and you're dishonoring in the way you're doing this. That's why we don't need to wear a head covering today because it doesn't dishonor your husband if you don't wear a head covering, okay? That is a cultural thing. But the importance of honoring your husband as your head is still valid. Why? Because that comes from Genesis 2. Understanding that he is the head. Likewise, number four, Adam's headship and leadership was further confirmed by his naming of Eve. You know, the very first recorded human words in the Bible. What are they? Here they are. Genesis 2, verse 23. Then the man said, Adam... This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now that's what woman means in the original language, literally out of man. God could have named woman himself, couldn't he? Why not? Why didn't God do it? Okay, I'll have you man, you woman. But he doesn't. He says, I'll have you man. No, I want you to name her as a sign of his headship. He's named everything. And now at the pinnacle of God's creation, as he makes man and woman, he says, I want you now to name her. What do you want to call her? I know. I'll call her woman, because she came from my side. Okay, let's go with that. But it was a sign of his leadership, a sign of his headship over her. And she would have understood that. She would have instinctively understood that, that it was a sign of his headship. And if you've ever wondered why still today wives take the surname of the husband... It's because of that. You see, when Britain used to be great, used to be Great Britain, and it used to rule the waves and be all around the earth, you know, back then the kings and queens of Britain and the religious leaders used to be very intertwined. And so marriage ceremonies were often written by guys way smarter than me who really loved the Bible. 
And they understood that Adam named Eve. It was a sign of his headship. And so it became part of the marriage proposal that she would take his surname. I love it. People still do it by their millions. They have no clue what it represents. That's what it represents. It's a sign that I'm coming under his headship. He's going to be the leader of my home. So with your name, I take your life and your headship into my life. I love it when people do that and they have no clue what it means. But I sit there going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Comes from Genesis chapter 2. And then number 5, Adam's headship is further established by the divine call of marriage. So in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, we read as follows. He says, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now I think if this was introduced in one day society, people would be up in arms saying, But doesn't the woman leave home as well? Yes, she does. But as a sign of Adam's headship, the emphasis is that he leaves home. He comes out of the headship of his own dad and he now starts his own home where he will be the head of the home. And she then comes to join him. But the very context of marriage and the way it was always meant to work, Genesis 2.24, is for this reason, the fact that he is the head of the home, he shall leave father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh, a new home in which he will be the new head and leader of his home. Now, as John Piper said, as I quoted last week, differential roles were corrupted and not created by the fall. They were created by God. Genesis chapter 2, everything takes place prior to the fall. God has made us equal in value and worth and dignity and ability to reflect the Godhead, but different in roles, different by design for his glory. Adam is head, Eve is helper. And he looked on at all of that and said, it is good. But then in Genesis 3, the fall comes. Sin enters the world and we would be heavily mistaken <coughs> to not assume or understand that the fall <coughs> excuse me, had a profound effect on our lives. Had a profound effect on our lives. When sin came into the world, pain came into the world. Pain in childbirth for ladies. Pain in work for men. Pain in relationships for us all. Adam and Eve are removed from the garden. They can no longer spend time with God in the way they did in Genesis 1 and 2. And from then on in, there would be pain in our relationships as well as men and women, particularly in marriage. See Genesis 3.16, post-fall, we read, Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Desire and rule in the original language, they are both negative words. They are picked up later on when Cain kills Abel. They're the same type of words. And from then on in, because of the fall, for the woman, for the wife, there would be a desire to control and manipulate. Happy for him to be the head as long as I can be the neck and point him wherever I need him to go. And for the man and the husband, there will be a desire to rule. And as he discovers with the rise of the female domination that he can't, he will just do what Adam did instead and abdicate. And just decide that this works best. That's how it sort of works for us. That's how we keep a peace in our home. And thus, in Genesis chapter 3, the battle of the sexes begins. Well, the book that we're in today, the book of Ephesians, 
comes then post the finished work of Jesus Christ. Genesis 3.15, right there at the start of creation and the fall, God promises as he looks at that serpent and he says, one day one will come, and although you will bruise his heel, he will crush your head. The serpent crusher is promised, one who comes, who will put all things to right. One will come, who will take man and woman and get us back to the garden, back to fellowship with God. And all the story of the Old Testament and then is, who is it going to be? Who is this serpent crusher going to be? And then we get to the Gospels and we realize this, it's Jesus. He's the serpent crusher. He's the one who is going to make everything right. He is the one who is going to make it possible for us to go back in the garden. And then when we get to the book of Ephesians, post Jesus' finished work, his life and death and resurrection, Paul says, you know what? He is the serpent crusher and through him we can be forgiven, we can be redeemed, we can be adopted, we can receive the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. I mean, Paul is just one happy and excited apostle as he's preaching. He said, for hundreds of years we've waited for the serpent crusher. For hundreds of years we've waited for the Savior. But he has come and he was Jesus. And now through him, as we put our faith in him, we can be forgiven of our sin and adopted and redeemed. And for all of us that have then done that, he says, for all of us that have put our faith in Jesus, we're therefore citizens of heaven. We're sojourners here, we're foreigners here. But we were made now for a better place, a heavenly garden, where we will be with Jesus and God for all eternity. But as he preaches that message to the Ephesians, he gets to chapter 4 and he says, Listen, in light then of who you are, in light of all that Jesus has done for you, in light of the fact that you are forgiven and adopted and redeemed and heaven is your home, I urge you then, I urge you to live in a manner of the, worthy, of the calling you've received. To live in a manner worthy of the calling you've received. You're strangers in this place. You're made for a heavenly home. We're just sojourners here now. Our citizenship belongs in heaven. And so having been forgiven and redeemed and adopted and sealed by the Holy Spirit himself, Paul tells us, listen, I want to urge you then to eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Stand together as men and women in the context of a local church in unity. Get connected and committed to a local church. Play your parts. Pursue holiness. Attend the divine change room. Put off the old self. Renew your mind. Put on the new self. And in all things, put on the full armor of God, aware of the devil's devil's schemes, one who prowls around you like a roaring lion. These are all the things he's preaching on in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. And in Ephesians 5, as the pinnacle of all he's talking about, he says, listen, and as Christians, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling you received, so work on your relationships. Parents to kids, masters to slaves, oh, and men to women within the context of marriage. And so as he preaches that in Ephesians 5, post the finished work of Jesus Christ, I want you to understand, he unapologetically in this passage takes us then all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. He even quotes it. The quote that you read in verse 31 is Genesis 2 verse 24. So post the work of Jesus Christ. 
Paul is helping us see. You're different now. You're new creations now. So live in a manner worthy of the calling you've received. Okay, what does that look like for my marriage? I'll tell you what it looks like. Genesis 1 and 2. It's genius. And it's the way God always intended it to be. Carrie Sandham again in a book, Different by Design, says it this way. He says, The fall of humanity in Genesis 3 has had a devastating impact on us all. We were born into sin, and all our relationships are affected by it. Instead of order in the world, there is chaos, as the downward spiral of sin and rebellion takes its course. But even in the midst of all this madness, there is still hope. God's design for men and women was revealed in creation and rejected at the fall. But it is wonderfully restored in Christ. The long-awaited serpent crusher has come and the effects of the fall can now be reversed. This means that Christians today have the huge privilege of living in the age of the Spirit. But with this privilege, there comes great responsibility. In response to his grace, We are to live lives that reflect the Lord Jesus and demonstrate that the Spirit is at work within us, enabling us to live for him and serve other people. With Satan now overthrown, we do not have to live like we used to. We are free to live as God intended. God's design was revealed in creation. It was rejected at the fall, but it is now wonderfully restored in Christ. Isn't that beautiful? And so, when it comes to God's grand design for husbands, what does it mean? Well, it means Genesis chapter 2. It means headship. It means that we are still called to be the heads and spiritual leaders of our homes. And now with the spirit of Jesus Christ in us, we're called to go all the way back prior to the fall and seek to become like that man and woman in the garden once again. That's God's grand design. It's his beautiful design. And so the question I want to tackle in for the rest of this morning is simply this. What then is biblical headship? Because if I just stopped now, you'd all go home thinking, oh, okay, so I'm at home. Okay, good, I'll be the head. Not necessarily a clue what we're going to do with it, but I'm the head of the home. We need to understand what is the Bible teaching about headship? What does it actually all mean? And for that, we find ourselves in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 23. So what then is this biblical headship? Well, listen, if you are a husband, I want to encourage you to listen up very carefully. Because God is addressing you in Ephesians chapter 5. We need to pay attention to what we hear. And if you are a wife, (laughs) I want you to avoid all temptation to make notes on your husband's behalf this morning. Okay, I, I want you to pay attention so that you can know how to encourage him and help him and aid him in what God has called him to do. And if you are a single, I want you also to pay attention to what we're learning here. Because there will be many men who are husbands in your life that we need to understand what is God calling them to do so that I can be an appropriate brother or sister to you for the glory of the Lord and encourage you in what God has called you to. So I want us all to pay attention, but particularly husbands, I want you to pay distinct attention. 
And by way of understanding what then is this biblical headship, there's a couple of things by background we have to understand first. First of all, male headship does not carry across into every male and female relationship that we find ourselves in. Okay? It's really important that we understand that. It's not the responsibility on all women everywhere to submit to all men everywhere. That is not what the Bible teaches in any way. The Bible teaches that this is in the confines of marriage. One wife, one husband, and him being the head of the home. So I don't want any men going into rooms full of women and going, welcome ladies, the head has arrived. Okay, that's not going to work out. That's not what the Bible teaches. So young men, nice try, already knock it off. Okay, it's not going to work out. Headship is very specifically within the marriage context. And secondarily, within that background, we have to understand then, what really is marriage? Because we will never truly understand God's pattern in marriage, namely equal yet different, if we don't understand God's purpose in marriage. And to help us understand God's purpose in marriage, well... We find ourselves in Ephesians 5 because the answer to what marriage really is, what the purpose of it, is right here in verses 31 through 32. So you look with me again at Ephesians 5 verse 31. It says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Paul is quoting here Genesis 2 verse 24. But what is really unique and really neat and profound about what he's doing here is he then unpacks what that actually always meant. He unpacks what a profound mystery this was prior to this moment, but what it actually means now through the risen Jesus Christ. He says in verse 32, This mystery is profound. Going back to the way marriage was intended in Genesis 2. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and The church. I mean, that is truly profound. It is truly profound what is taking place. Because what he's saying is, listen, in the Old Testament, Adam and Eve and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses, they got married, but they never truly understood why God had designed this, what his grand purpose for marriage was. But now through Christ, we see what it is. And Paul, as an individual who is breathing out Scripture in this moment, says, listen, this is the profound mystery revealed. Something that was concealed for the ages, but we now see marriage for the glory of the Lord is all to do with Christ as the bridegroom and the church as the bride. Marriage is a divine picture. Marriage, as intended by God, is a divine picture through which we reveal the glorious relationship between Christ and the church. That is the profound mystery revealed. Marriage is always designed and set up to reveal God's grand relationship between Christ and the church. Marriage then wasn't actually designed to be all about us. We must understand that as Christians. Your marriage isn't all about you. Your marriage is actually all about him. Because your marriage is a moving picture and parable all the time of Christ's love for the church and her response to him. That is what it's designed to be a picture of all along for the glory of the Lord. And as Christians, we need to redeem that for what it really is before him. 
Marriage, as intended by God, is a moving picture through which we reveal the glorious relationship between Christ and the church. You know, I think it'd be fair to say that that is a concept and a reality that is completely foreign in our culture, isn't it? It is completely foreign. I mean, I remember when I first arrived in Australia and I couldn't marry people over here because we weren't a recognized denomination, so I had to become a marriage celebrant. I remember being in the class and the guy says, okay, so everybody, let's start. I've got a question for you. What is marriage? So, look, I I knew what the answer he was looking for was. The answer he was looking for is the monotone. It comes from section 46.1 of the Marriage Act. So I should have said this. Marriage, according to the law in Australia, is the union of a man and woman, to the exclusion of all others, voluntarily entered into for life. That's what I should have said, but I was feeling mischievous. So he said, what is marriage? So I went, "Hmm." (laughs) He said, yes. I said, marriage is a picture given to us by God as a gift of Christ's love for the church and her response to him. And there was tumbleweed. And everybody was just like, I said, well, I'm a pastor. Um, I think that's what the Bible. And they didn't really push back on me. They just never, ever heard of it before. Never heard. Never, ever heard of anything like that. So we talked about it over lunch. And I kept describing to them, well, I think this is what marriage is about. And to be fair, they were, they were quite interested as he was discussing it. But it revealed to me yet again that our culture doesn't understand marriage at all. Which is why now so freely they feel the liberty to just change it all up. Hey, let's get marriage between two men and two women. Because what is it about anyway? Well, it's, it's a picture of Christ's relationship with his bride, the church. So we can't just mess that up. This is divine. So it would be immoral for us to just change it up and then go, Oh, congratulations. No. Because the very thing they're doing is something Christ had to die for. So I can't just applaud and celebrate when we just change up divine design. I could never do that. So I stuck my hand up and said what I believe marriage to be. They were relatively interested, but I did discover in that moment this is a concept that is completely foreign in our culture. And sadly, I think if I'm honest, it is a reality and an understanding of marriage that is so often foreign in churches as well. People don't understand it. But we have to understand that marriage is there as a moving picture of Christ and the church. His love for her and her loving response to him. So what then is this biblical headship? With that in mind, well, it's two things which I want to look at for the remainder of our time. Number one, what is this biblical headship? Well, number one, it is a God-given headship It is characterized by sacrificial love. We have to start there. Biblical headship is a God-given headship that is characterized by sacrificial love. Think again at Ephesians 5 verse 25. We read, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for You know, there is one word in that verse that characterizes the husband's headship and responsibility. And that word is love. God has not called husbands to dominate their wives, 
God has not called husbands to seek to control their wives, insisting that they submit in everything to him because that's their jobs, right? No, that would be domination. And that would be sinful before the Lord. Likewise, God has not called us to just provide a roof over our wife's head, be a Mr. Fix-It around the home and try and help out whenever they can and assume then my job's done. No, that would more often than not be called abdication. We're doing all the things that we think men should do, but we haven't sat under God's word and actually worked out, what is he calling me to do? What God has called us to do as husbands is to love our wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. My friends, it's vital we understand that headship is no way an opportunity to control or dominate. It is never that. Headship is a responsibility to love our wives, to serve them, to care for them, to protect them, to lead them, as Christ has done his bride, the church. And if we need to define then in a word what that love looks like, and if we pay careful attention to Ephesians 5 verse 25, the word then I think that would best define that love is sacrifice. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So you cannot spend time in verse 25 without beholding a view of Calvary. The finished work of Jesus Christ is on view here. The one who laid his life down, the one who received the wrath of God that we deserved, the one who knew no sin but became sin for us and who laid his life down then for his bride. And as God looks each husband in the eye, he's saying, listen, you are the head of the home. And this is what that means. Lay your life down for your wife. Lead her and care for her and serve her in a way that screams sacrificial love towards her. Carrie Sandon once again, I think just has a wonderful insight on this as as an older single lady. She said, if we think humble submission is a tall order for wives, then the command here for husbands is surely no less demanding. In fact, the standard required of them may be even harder. They are to love their wives as Christ loved the church, which means loving them sacrificially, even to the point of giving themselves up for them. As head of the family, they are to nurture, protect, and care for their wives, even if it means dying to protect them from harm. And once again, it is the Lord Jesus himself who provides the perfect model for them to follow. How wonderful. Brothers, my headship and the headship of all the husbands in this room is to be a headship that is emulative in nature to that of Jesus Christ and the way he laid down his life for his bride. You're never going to have to die for your wife in the sense of making her holy. Only Christ can do that. Only the perfect bridegroom can do that. But we are called to lay our lives down for them all the time and in pattern and example our loving headship should look like that of the Savior's, namely sacrifice.
So husbands, here then is the question for us. And I mean us. I've been convicted all week. I'm pleased at last I get to share the conviction with you men. Here's the question that I think we need to be asking ourselves. What then are we doing each day for our wives that involves sacrifice? What are we doing each day of our lives for our wives that is costing us something? Sacrifice always involves cost. Why King David, when he came to give an offering to the Lord, said, I'm not going to give him anything that costs me nothing. He understood sacrifice needs to cost. What are you doing each day for your wife that is costing you something? That's involving sacrifice. You know, a few things came to my attention this week as I was preparing this week's message. And one of those things was without doubt that I have married well, well, well out of my league. I mean, I'm like Division 7 at best, on a good day, downwind. My wife is like elite Premier League. And I remember 18 years ago when I asked her to marry me, I I just thought she was vulnerable, she was weak, and I thought, this is the moment. So I got down on one knee and I asked her to marry me, and in a moment of insanity on her behalf, she said yes. So I'm like, win! And one of the things I've loved about my wife is that she's an incredibly capable lady. She's godly. She loves the Lord. She loves me. She loves my family. And she serves her socks off all the time. And one of the things I have to bottom out then as a man with a wonderfully capable wife is how then am I going to disposition myself towards her? Am I going to lay my life down for her? in a way Jesus Christ has? Or am I going to wittingly, or maybe unwittingly, just take advantage of her? And sadly, given my laziness at times, given my selfishness at times, I without doubt either wittingly or unwittingly take advantage of her. But that's not right. It's not right for any of us. And it's not right because God-given headship is characterized all the time by sacrificial love. And so, brothers, what are you doing each day for your wife that involves sacrifice? God-given headship is characterized by sacrificial love. But while you think about that sacrifice, I want you to understand that that sacrifice has context. And it's important that we understand this. Because here's the second point about biblical headship that we have to understand. Number two, biblical headship. It is a God-given headship that always has our bride's growth in godliness primarily in view. It is a God-given headship that always has our bride's growth in godliness primarily in view. So verse 25, we read that biblical headship is characterized by love, a love that is defined by sacrifice, And then in verses 26 through 29, we discover that there is a purpose for that sacrifice, a context, a therefore. This is what Paul says in verse 26. That he, so it's a a therefore, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. The same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, 
He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. So what's the purpose of this sacrifice? What was the purpose of Jesus' sacrifice? Well, it was to make her holy. And so what is the purpose of our sacrifice? It is to make her holy. You'll never have to die for her to make that a reality. But as husbands, in our headship, in our sacrifice, it's always designed to help our wives grow ever increasingly in love with the Lord. Our sacrifice has a context. And that's so important because we can as men go to work, work hard, come back in, strap the baby to ourselves, cook all the dinner, tuck everybody in at night and think, I'm sacrificing all the time! And yet we still might be completely missing it because the sacrifice has a context and that context is her relationship with the Lord. Her falling more in love with Jesus, being more like Jesus and becoming more like him. Well, I think the obvious question then is how on earth do I do that? How as a husband do I sacrifice in such a way that leads to godliness? Well, listen, I've just got some pastoral recommendations for you as we finish. Here's what I think you can do. Number one, we sacrifice by growing in godliness ourselves. That's where we begin. We sacrifice by seeking to become more and more like Jesus, first and foremost, ourselves. See, brothers, if you are married, then you have been entrusted with the headship and leadership of your home. That's massive. That is a huge responsibility. You've been given that as a gift by the Lord. And you can bury your head and decide, oh, I don't like it, I'm going to ignore it. That's fine. But one day you'll die and there'll be a microphone in your hand and God will say to you, you are the head of your home, I want to talk to you about that. It's inevitable. He came looking for Adam as the first man in exactly the same way and one day he's going to come looking for you. And if we're going to lead our homes then we must be pursuing the Lord for ourselves. If we're going to lead our wives as to the Lord, then we need to know the Lord, don't we? We need to be with him and commune with him and be studying this word because when my kids are asking me questions, I can't just say, oh, I have no idea. Maybe ask your mum. I need to say, I have no idea. I'm going to find out for you, son. Because this is my responsibility as I lead you and seek to care for you. The best way we sacrifice, first and foremost, in our time and our energy is by pursuing the Lord for ourselves first, by growing in godliness for ourselves. Number two, we sacrifice by taking the time to discover where our wife needs to grow. By taking the time to serve her, I'll be understanding where does she need to grow before the Lord? See, I love being the pastor of this church. It is a great privilege. It is a great joy and an honor to be the lead pastor of Sovereign Grace Church. But ladies, here's what I want you to know. If you're married, you have two pastors in your life. And I am the secondary one. God has given you a primary one. One who's called to wash you with the word. One who's called to care for you and serve you and protect you in line with God's word. You know who that person is? It's the person sitting next to you in the moment. It's your husband. God's given you, him, as your pastor. 
to help you and care for you and protect you and lead you. I'm just a secondary guy at best. He's main stage. That's what God has called him to. And men, we need to realize that. We must recognize that. And so I want to encourage you then, men, if you're going to be able to pastor your wife well, you must take the time with her to discover and discern and bring aid to her as to where she needs to grow. And I can assure you, just from one pastor to another in this moment, that is going to take much time, much patience, much conversation, much humility, and much learning. See, for some of us, we had the privilege of growing up with a dad who modeled this for us. But for most of us, we didn't. And so we have to be humble enough to say, hey, listen, I think God has given me this responsibility before the Lord, but I have no clue what I'm doing. Would you help me? Would you, would you aid me in this? Because I want to be the best leader of my home I can be. And this is new to me. Right? It's different from what I'm doing It's going to take time, guys. It's going to take patience. It's going to take energy. But it is time and patience and learning that I truly believe we are called to sacrifice. Which is what our headship is all about. Loving sacrifice. To be the best leader we can. Number three, we sacrifice by helping to provide time and context for our wife's relationship with the Lord to grow. We help provide time and context for her to spend time with the Lord. See, for all of our lives and for all of our wives, seasons and times become sometimes busier than others, don't they? And I want to encourage you men that whatever the season and time, the best gift that you can give your wife is Jesus by a long way. Because you are probably not going to be the answer to your problems, but Jesus definitely is. We need to create time. And listen, if your wife has small children, I want you to understand this point should be on red alert to you because she really needs time with the Lord. And sometimes she isn't going to feel like spending time with the Lord at all. But that's where we need to understand our headships involved there. Hey, darling, let me look after the kid, not just so you can put your feet in a bath, but so you can put your feet in a bath with your Bible open because you need the Lord. How can I help you do that today? What can I do to make that a reality for you? Because you need Jesus. And then number four, we sacrifice by ongoingly nourishing and cherishing our wives. Again, in verse 28, it says, In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. I love these verses, in part because it's just Paul's realism. He's talking like a guy in this moment, bloke to bloke. And it's just hilarious. In verse 25, we've gone from the sublime heights to Jesus Christ laying his life down. And in verses 28 and 29, okay, dudes, let's just talk about your bodies for a moment and how you care for them. Because I know that's the way I'm going to get your attention. We need to care for your wife in the same way you care for your own body. You need to nourish and cherish her in the same way you do your own body. One commentator says, Paul uses the emotionally evocative language of nourish and cherish to communicate in all realism what it means to love one's wife. 
Or what does it mean then to nourish our wives? Listen, it's not complicated. I submit to you that what it means to nourish our wives is three things. Communication, communication, and communication. It's providing the time to talk. Just giving unhurried time. I think often, if you're like me, that's the thing that seems most difficult to give. Because I get distracted within 30 seconds. It's like, am I going to have the woman's version or the man's version in this answer? Because the man's version is, yep, nope. The woman's version is lengthy. We're just wired differently. Men need to bear with their wives with all patience. It says that in Peter. Because he knows you are going to be vulnerable not to want to listen in. But sacrificial loving headship towards her is making sure you not only listen in, but you listen attentively. Because you're called to nourish her like you would your own body. And what does it mean to cherish our wives? Well, one commentator says, to cherish means to lovingly protect and care for her with great affection. I love that. What does it mean to cherish somebody? It means to make her feel special. And so we sacrifice. We sacrifice by growing in godliness ourselves. We sacrifice by taking the time to discover where our wife needs to grow. We sacrifice by helping to provide time and context for her to spend time with the Lord. And we sacrifice by ongoingly nourishing and cherishing our wives. Listen, let me just say this in closing. If we're honest, I think it's so easy in this moment to feel utterly overwhelmed, is it not? I can't help it that this is what God's called us to. I'm just just the messenger. But it's so easy to feel overwhelmed with, oh my goodness. I said to Emma on Thursday night, I'm not looking forward to giving this message on Sunday. She said, why is that? Because I've just been convicted by all the things I need to grow in. It, It can be overwhelming. But knowing that you would be feeling that, I just want to close by taking you as husbands to two people. Here's the first person I want to take you to. Your helper. Your bride. Your wife. A gift from God to you. And gentlemen, I want you to know she is worth it. This is not a time to be overwhelmed and then retreat like Adam did and said, oh, whatever you want, dear, I'll just let you. No, that is abdication. This is a time to realize, man, this is difficult. But she is worth it. Proverbs 18 verse 22 says, He who finds a good wife finds a good thing. And Proverbs 12 verse 4 says, An excellent wife is the crown of her husband. And as I consider Sovereign Grace Church Sydney, I see a lot of crowns around the place. I've married up. So have you. It's a Sovereign Grace distinctive. In fact, I haven't met a guy in part of Sovereign Grace as yet that I think, oh, man, you just, you're just so much more mature than your wife. No, most of the time I encounter you, think, nice bloke. I encounter your wife and think, he is a lucky guy. I see a lot of crowns around the place. So gentlemen, I want to encourage you. You need to hold your crown really tight and lay your life down for her because she is worth it. Outside of the gospel, I believe she is the greatest gift that God has ever given you. 
And so I want to encourage you as husbands, find some unhurried time to ask your wife this question this week. Ask her this. If you knew I wouldn't become angry, always start it that way, it always helps. If you knew I wouldn't become angry, how would you honestly evaluate my leadership of you? And then ask her this. What's one specific way that I could be a better husband to you? Ask her. She is your helper. Allow her to help you be the man that you're called to be. And wives, if that happens to you this week, I want to encourage you, be gentle with him. He may look rough on the outside, but inside we still like, feel like we're six sometimes. Be gentle with him. Be patient with him. But be honest with him. As we'll see next week, being a helper is not a weak thing. It is a strong thing, and he needs you to be honest with him if he's going to be the man that he's called to be. So gentlemen, I want to encourage you to ask her and hold your wife's hand really tight. And as you do that, here's the second person I want to leave you with. Your saviour. The perfect man. The perfect groom. If you, like me, are aware of areas that you need to grow in this, here then are my final words to you. Hebrews 4. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We need him, don't we? So hold her hand really tight and run to the Lord and then be the leader and head of your home that you've been called to be. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you that as we spend time this morning looking at headship, I thank you that even as we discuss it, we're not alone. Because for all of us as a church, we have a head. And that is you. Saviour, thank you for your direction in our lives. Thank you that you haven't just left us in Genesis chapter 3 as a consequence of the fall, confused and unclear what to do. But the story continues and you help us see how through the Spirit now, what we're called to do. I love for all of us then, men and women, married and single, help us to follow hard after you. Lord, thank you for urging us then to live in a manner worthy of the calling that we've received. Would we live it? Dependent upon your grace and always seek to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, brother. Thanks, buddy. Thanks,